Hello, and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and invite discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Let's get started. So welcome again. Uh, my name is Duncan Green. I'm a professor in practice at the LSE and I also work for Oxfam. Very excited today. We have a uh, top speaker, Nora Lustig, um, is probably the leading authority on inequality in Latin America, the topic of her talk. She's Samuel Z. Stone Professor of Latin American Economics and the founding director of the Commitment to Equity Institute at Tulane University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, the Center for Global Development, and the Inter-American Dialogue. So she's in every room that matters when you discuss inequality in Latin America. Um, she's a founder member uh, and president emeritus of the Latin American and Caribbean Economic Association, LASEA, and was a, a co-director of the very, very influential sort of uh, landmark World Bank World Development Report 2000 on attacking poverty. Um, she received her doctorate in economics uh, from the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, she was born and raised in Buenos Aires, uh, but has lived in Mexico and the US uh, for most of her professional life. Um, she's going to talk about the uh, inequality in Latin America, markets, COVID-19 and policies. And then we will have a discussant who admitted as we uh, got together for this, that he's a bit of a stalker and has been following Nora for, for many years with admiration. Jean-Paul Faget, who is a professor of the political economy of development at the LSE and also runs co-runs the uh, development management course. So thank you, Jean-Paul, and thank you, Nora. Nora, you have about um, 55 minutes, an hour. Um, so the floor is yours. Well, let me start by thanking you, Duncan. A pleasure to be here at, uh, as uh, one of the speakers in your very interesting series on cutting edge issues. And uh, delighted to have Jean-Paul be my, my discussant. And as we decided, you're gonna let me know when I have five minutes left. So I know when I need to rush through what I am going to present today. Um, okay, so I'm going to share my PowerPoint because I, find that uh, especially when you talk about things like trends in inequality, determinants, and etc., it's much easier if you show figures than uh, if you just speak. Uh, okay, so here, you know, the uh, essentially what I am going to be talking about today is first, you know, discuss what's happened to inequality in Latin America, looking at the evolution and the main determinants, then discuss a bit, you know, the sort of paradoxical situation because we're gonna see that inequality had been falling in the region, 
But at the same time, in the last few years, you had a rise of protests in many countries in, in Latin America that happened before COVID, although some of them have continued. Obviously, with the pandemic, it's been harder to mobilize people in the streets. And thirdly, I'm going to share some new work that we've been doing to look into the uh, relationship between uh, COVID-19, the shock, but primarily the economic shock that comes with COVID-19, its impact on inequality and poverty. And I'm going to focus there for four largest countries in Latin America for which we have studied this. It's Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. The first part, uh, first two items are based on And actually, in Spanish, it's a chapter for the 50, 50th anniversary of CAF, the Latin American Development Bank. Uh, and uh, in English, it came out as a working paper in uh, our Commitment to Equity Institute working paper series. So if people want to see the whole thing, you can just click on that. Or I don't even know if that you I think you're going to share the PowerPoint. But in any event, it's there. And uh, if you go to our website, you also will find it. So let me start with uh, what's happening with two inequality in Latin America. I think we we have very interesting results in terms of trends and also learning about determinants. And then when I talk about the determinants, I'm going to look at things that have to do with market outcomes and also what could have been the impact of political dynamics in particular. The fact that you had at some point uh, about 10 countries of the 17 in the region being governed by a center or center leftist government. So we, when we look at the, I mean, what, the first thing, I hope this is an established and accepted fact now, because for many years, whenever I was saying that inequality in Latin America was falling, I, I, I faced resistance because the people were focusing on the rising inequality that we have observed in other parts of the world. But the fact is that is when you compare the early 90s with the most recent data of uh, this uh, you know, decade that's ending now, uh, inequality shows a decline. Income inequality, by the way. I'm going to be talking about income inequality. I'm not looking at other dimensions, but uh, it, they're important, but this is not part of uh, the conversation today. However, you know, when you look at this about 30-year period, you can distinguish three uh, that had different patterns. The first one, which goes from the early 90s, let's say, to the early 2000s, you, you, you had mainly rising inequality in the countries for which we have data. So that was a pattern that followed both the adjustment period of the 1980s when you had the debt crisis and a lot of the market-oriented reforms were introduced, in particularly trade liberalization. And to some extent, trade liberalization was uh, one of the reasons why inequality increased because it made the uh, wages for the skilled better paid than those of the low-skilled. Then, you know, between 2002-2013, roughly, inequality declined in practically every country. That was very interesting because many people say, okay, you know, 2000s is a commodity boom period for Latin America when prices of raw materials were increasing very fast, primarily as a result of high demand from China. But... Uh, we're going to see that uh, it's pretty pervasive. So it happened 
the inequality decline happen both in countries that were experiencing a boom and also those that were not. So that's not something that distinguishes uh, the, uh, the effect. Since 2013, the declining inequality trend did not continue throughout. There's some countries in which we still see a decline in inequality, but what we could say is that in general, the pace has been slower in those in which inequality continued to decline. In other cases, it stopped altogether. And in some cases, notably Argentina and Brazil, we're seeing, seeing reversals in which inequality is starting to grow again. However, the growth so far is not sufficiently large to erase what was gained in the past. For the entire period, it's still true that inequality is lower today than it was 30 years ago. Let me show you some data here. So in this, in this, I'm going to show you the three sub-periods and then the overall. This is the period in which inequality was rising. And how do we read this? Let me use a laser pointer, which I think it's useful to... Uh, so the diagonal would show countries in which inequality didn't change. On the horizontal axis, we have the Gini coefficient for the early 90s, circa 1992. And here we have circa 2002. So if inequality doesn't change uh, for that country between the two periods, the orange dot should be on the diagonal. That's the case of El Salvador and Colombia, for example, and uh, Guatemala and Peru, which lie pretty much on the, on the diagonal. But in most of the countries, inequality was rising. Anything that's above the diagonal means that inequality was rising. Some it was declining, but in most of the countries it was rising. And I mentioned earlier that uh, this is linked to things that had to do with the process uh, of uh, adjustment and, and market-oriented reforms that it also probably had to do with uh, the way in which education sort of, the access to education due to the adjustment in the 1980s uh, sort of went through a pause in the sense that uh, when you compare the average years of schooling, the increase continued, but it continued at a much slower pace, which meant that the composition of the labor force was not shifting towards more skilled workers in this period. And that's probably behind uh, also why the wage inequality increased. And as we will see later, that may be one of the reasons why uh, this uh, what happens to wage inequality is a driving force of what happens to overall inequality. So what happened in the next period? This is the, this is the golden age of Latin America. Some people are calling this golden decade. We have lost decades, but we had one good decade as well, fortunately. And uh, what you see here is, as I showed you earlier, this is the Gini coefficient in around 2002. This is around 2013. The diagonal will tell me which countries didn't change inequality. Anything above the diagonal would tell me that the country in country experienced an increase in inequality when I compare these two dates. Anything below a decline. And look, all the data points are below the diagonal. So the decline had been systematic, larger in some places than others. Uh, for example, 
in Uruguay was big, in Bolivia was big, in Brazil was big, in Argentina was big. Uh, so you do see that the, the change was always in the direction of lower inequality, but at a different pace, depending on the country. So finally, this is the more recent period, the period in which we do begin to see the unrest, if you want, in Latin America. And as you can see, <clears throat> we're beginning to observe some countries in which inequality is beginning to grow. Here we see Brazil and Paraguay, uh, some in which the fault, con, con, the fault did not continue, those that lie on the diagonal, and some that uh, still show a decline in inequality, uh, but at a slower pace. Interestingly, and uh, I should say at the outset, I do not have the answer. This is a very good topic for research for those who are looking for something to do uh, as a thesis or research uh, uh, as part of your, your uh, own research uh, program. El Salvador and also, you know, Honduras, and I think to um, a lesser extent, because here in Guatemala doesn't show that anymore, they have experienced a decline in inequality, which people don't understand yet why it happened. And in the Salvador, it's quite dramatic, actually. So I think Central America is a, should be a, the focus of new research. And it's usually an understudied uh, area because it's not you know, the largest, most attractive countries. People like to work on Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, of course. But this is a very interesting uh, region that deserves more work. When you look at the entire period, then what happened is that practically in every country, inequality was lower, except Costa Rica, in which uh, I'm here, I'm comparing early 90s with the most recent data points in the uh, 2010 decade. And uh, the overall is that the Gini coefficient is lower. Now, if you want to use another indicator to make sure that it's not Gini driven, this result here I show you the income share ratios for the richest compared to the lowest decile, income decile. And still you see that practically all the countries are below the diagonal for the period that we're looking at uh, for the entire 30 year period. So bottom line is when you start comparing Latin America with the rest of uh, the regions of the world, here we have them uh, classified according to the World Bank classification of countries. Well, Latin America stands out because it did experience first the rise and then this decline in inequality that uh, is quite striking because, you know, it's around five to six Gini points, which is huge. Uh, we do see a little bit in, in Asia, a little bit in the Middle East, but these uh, countries, uh, there are very few countries in the data set so for Middle East, so we shouldn't pay that much attention. Uh, and a little bit in Europe, but the, this dramatic decline that we see here, we don't see anywhere else in, in, in any other region. So this is a, you know, an interesting story that re deserves a study understanding because it also implies that inequality can go down. We're always talking about inequality and how it rises, but inequality can also go down. So what... Uh, what are the two main reasons that according to the work that we have done, we think uh, are underlying this uh, change in, in inequality in the direction of lower inequality? 
We think there are two main factors was the expansion of access to education, which resulted in lower inequality in earnings or labor income inequality, and a larger volume and progressivity in public transfers. This was the period in which you had the expansion of transfers. And I'm showing you here a sort of like a synthetic uh, graph of a, a result, results I would, uh, of, of research that looks at the uh, proximate factors behind the changes in inequality during the period in which it declined, uh, disaggregating it by which of the following, labor income, public transfers, other sources of income, pensions, capital income, and as you can see, this light blue area, over 60% of the decline in inequality is explained by a decline in labor income inequality. So what happened to the wage distribution is very important. It's sort of the bulk of the story in this period. The second most important is the orange, which is transfers. These are government transfers. So what happened in the dimension of transfers is also very important to explain why inequality declined in the period. The gray one is the third most important, 15%. And this is private transfers. Primarily, it's probably remittances uh, that explains why there were the private transfers were playing an important role. The decline in inequality in private transfers played an important role in explaining the decline in inequality overall. Now, pensions were also uh, an equalizing force here. And also, surprisingly, capital income was an equalizing force. Mind you, you know, as you know, we use household surveys, and I'm going to come back to this issue later. And household surveys, as you know, are not capturing well what happens at the top of the distribution. It's really Household surveys are not a good source to see what happens to capital income. This is something actually Duncan, remember Oxfam has been writing about as well. And so we should take this with a grain of salt. We really are not looking at what the role of capital income was in terms of what happened to inequality in this period. So it's mainly a labor income story, very important by the way, a transfer story and also remittance story, okay? So what's behind this then becomes to understand becomes very important to understand what uh, may have been uh, one of the key factors in explaining the decline in inequality in in uh, in Latin America, and uh, you know what uh, what what's very interesting is that we see that the if you look at the, what people call the growth incidence curves for for labor income you can see that. Definitely, the 2000s were a period in which the bottom workers uh, with labor income at the bottom experienced a tremendous increase in their labor income uh, versus those in the middle, which is 32%, and for the richest vessel, which was 15%. So why did uh, in, you know, wages increase more for, or labor income increases increase more for the bottom? I mean, we did not find that it was related to hours worked, uh, but the the bottom line is that we do see that their returns to education became uh, relatively lower for people with 
higher levels of education. Tertiary versus incomplete primary or not primary, secondary versus incomplete primary or not primary, and complete primary versus no primary or incomplete primary. Practically in all the countries, those are the dots on the left here. I need to do something with... Yeah, so all the, all the dots on the left show the, uh, I mean, the, the squares here are the decline in the Gini coefficient, the bars, you know, those bars. And the left dots refer the blue ones to the returns, the relative returns to tertiary, the uh, yellow to relative returns to secondary, and the uh, maroon ones or red ones or brown, I don't know what color you see them there, refer to the returns to complete primary vis-a-vis -vis always our, we're comparing versus people who only had incomplete primary uh, or no, no education. So what happened during this period is that, uh, I'm, I'm not showing this here, but if you look at the countries specifically, you're gonna see that the composition of the labor force became much more tilted towards people with higher levels of education. So the markets worked its way through, people with lower levels like incomplete primary, uh, or no education became relatively scarce. Those who had more educational levels became relatively more abundant. So the wage gap between the groups narrowed and that is one of the most important forces explaining why inequality in labor incomes declined. And as I showed you earlier, that's one of the main reasons why the overall inequality in, uh, based on the household survey results, the overall inequality declined. So the nice part of the story is that expansion in education had a lot to do, in access to education had a lot to do with why inequality declined in the region. And it also explains why it happened in countries that experienced very different patterns in terms of either growth, it, inequality declined in countries with high growth and with low growth, commodity exporters and commodity importers, and governed by the left or uh, by non-leftist uh, regime as well. So it was pervasive, as I showed you in the graph earlier during this period, that all the countries, regardless of all the other characteristics, they experienced this decline in inequality. And the only phenomenon that was pretty common to all the countries was this change in the composition of the labor force by, by education as a proxy of skills, if you want. The other thing that happened during this period is with the introduction of the large cash transfer programs transfer, uh, targeted to the poor in particular. And again, this you know, happened in countries that were government governed by different regimes, either leftist and non-leftist, and also in countries that were growing and not growing. So this was the second very important factor uh, behind the overall decline in inequality. Um, finally, we also see that on top of this, there were other factors that were probably reinforcing the changes in inequality towards uh, decline in inequality. And uh, it's, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to show you some graphs now that it's true that while inequality fell throughout the region, countries that were governed by the left experienced a sharper decline than countries government, uh, governed by non-leftist uh, uh, governments. 
And uh, then, you know, we started to look into what could have been the mechanisms. And I'm going to show you probably one of them might have been the minimum wages, also expansion in social spending and uh, maybe social pensions were I was just telling Duncan before we started, we're doing some econometric work, which I hope will be out in the next couple of months. And you will be able to see which mechanisms explain why leftist regimes were probably more equalizing than the non-left. And here I show you this graph. The blue, this is the average Gini of the region uh, for the 17 countries. And as you can see before, I mean, this is, uh, is uh, the moving averages. As you can see before the 2000s, before the onset of the left, there was no difference between countries, uh, whether they were not governed by the left in general, but the, they were pursuing pretty much the same type of trend. Once you begin to having, you know, the pluses means when a leftist government became, became, uh, came into power, and then the minus is when they start leaving. Um, you can see that the decline in inequality among those countries that were governed by the left was sharper than those that were not uh, governed by the left. And we use, you know, the definition of left here, we use what political scientists have been calling left, which includes the populist left, the more traditional left, and not social democratic left, more radical, less radical. But, uh, you know, we... Is, uh, me as an economist, I relied on the taxonomy that political scientists have, have used uh, to define what's, what's left in the region. And here we can see what happened to the minimum wages. And what happened to the minimum wages is that, again, for this is the average for the entire region. So it was they were rising. The real uh, minimum wage was rising in the period that inequality fell. But it was rising faster among countries that were governed by the left than among the countries that were not governed by uh, leftist regimes. So bottom line, inequality declined. In the 2000s, we have uh, explanations that have to do with what happened to education, what happened to uh, transfers, and also on top of that, in some of the countries, a reinforcing factor might have been the policies implemented under leftist regimes, in particular minimum raising minimum wages. And also we're getting some results, which I didn't show because they're very new on in terms of uh, being able to tax more. The leftist governments increase the size of the pie uh, to be redistributed. And, and uh, also they the cash transfers were not different among left and non-left, but uh, social pensions probably were more prevalent among uh, leftist governments. And that seems to have been another reason why uh, inequality declined in this period faster among leftist than non-leftist regimes. Okay, so in this next uh, uh, part of my, my presentation, um, let me know, Duncan, how much more do I have? I want to see how to pace myself with this and the last part. You're doing fine. You've got at least 30 minutes if you want it. Okay, perfect. So, you know, you had this experience of a pervasive decline in inequality, and then you see these rising protests, and you start asking yourself why this seems paradoxical. Why is a region that was experiencing a systematic decline is actually also showing so much social unrest? And here I'm just going to share with you some conjectures because this is not something that has been 
answered and probably the answers depend on the countries in the end because there's uh, country specificity also in the protest. But there may be some common patterns that uh, I will share with you and uh, and see whether, again, this is a very interesting if you're on topic for for further research, and I hope that I'm going to entice the curiosity of people to continue working on this. Uh, so I am going to sort of uh, venture on these possibilities. Well, it had a negative impact on the end of the commodity boom. Uh, then we have issue with the indicators that we commonly use to assess whether uh, inequality has evolved in a particular way or not. Uh, some are data limitations, the others maybe, you know, to capture discontent, you need different indicators from the relative ones that we're using. And then, uh, so the other one will be, like I said, on the limitations of the data. And here I'm going to focus on the issue of the fact that we use household survey data to measure inequality trends in general that are not capturing what's happening at the top what's happening with the top 1%. As we know, there's been <clears throat> quite a, I mean, the top 1% is a metaphor with what's happening at the very top with the elites in those countries. Uh, well, I mean, I think that uh, the discontent had to do with the end of the commodity boom, because regardless of what happened to inequality, even if inequality continued to fall in some countries or it stopped falling, but it not increased, the truth is that in the countries that experience the end of the commodity boom, which is primarily South American countries, which is primarily where you saw the unrest, had uh, difficulties. Some of them were undergoing recessions. Others were definitely experiencing lower growth rates. And this affects poverty. So maybe regardless of what happened to inequality, people's living standards started to fall. People became the poor became poorer and the middle classes also lost ground. One interesting thing that had happened during the period of uh, declining inequality is that the, there was a pretty sharp growth of the what you would call the middle class or the middle of the income distribution. These groups, as far as when uh, the commodity boom ends, are the ones that also begin to suffer losses. So there's growing frustration because vis-a-vis of where they were during the period of the commodity boom, they're worse off. Um, also, you know, some of the political scientists argue that maybe you have you have uh, a reverse, I mean, there's a, an anti-incumbent vote and uh, an anti, uh, and the protest may have been uh, linked to whomever was in power. But I think a lot has to do with the fact that the party had ended because the commodity boom was gone. And this is more linked to living standards, absolute living standards, and not so much with inequality, the fact that people were losing ground. Uh, and interestingly, you can see how the perceptions of inequality are uh, also um, highly sensitive if you want to what happens to inequality, because this is, uh, this is uh, data from uh, Latino Barometro. And here I have the share of people who think the distributions are just or very unjust around 2002. And this is around 2013. Recall, this is a period in which inequality declined. And what happened is that the, percept the people who were angry about what was happening to inequality, the perception of 
the proportion of people who thought it was unjust or very unjust is below the diagonal. It means that it was falling in 2013. It was lower than it had been in 2002. And once the inequality uh, does not continue to decline, the commodity boom ends, we begin to see the reversal. There's more countries in which the share of people who think that the distribution of income is uh, unfair, very unfair, rises around 2017 vis-a-vis what it was in 2013. So there was, you know, brewing anger, if you want to, brewing frustration, brewing discontent as a result of uh, the changes, both, I think, in absolute living standards and also uh, the fact that inequality did not continue to fall. Uh, now, one thing that uh, I also have been uh, thinking and others have been thinking uh, on this as well is that we use either to measure inequality, we rely on, on relative measures, the genies one, the shares of the top 10 and the top uh, and the bottom 10 is a relative one. Any Kuznets ratio, like, you know, the, the so-called Palma ratio, which looks at the top 10 versus the bottom 40, if I'm, or, bottom, or top, 10, top 20 above uh, the bottom 40, any of those are measures of relative inequality. You can have a decline in relative inequality while at the same time, the absolute inequality continues to rise. And I think that if you combine what I show here, for example, that uh, in Chile, even though the relative inequality was falling, the absolute levels with people at the bottom compared what was happening to their income versus what was happening at the very top in absolute terms. When they look at that, the difference, the difference continued to rise. It means that, you know, I may not be able to buy much more than I was able to buy before because the commodity boom is gone. But, you know, the very rich can continue to purchase more and more of uh, Mercedes-Benz and go on vacation to beautiful places because the absolute levels continue to increase. I think that can uh, be a factor of frustration even in the context of lowering relative inequality. Something interesting to look into uh, as a research question here, like I said, I am just giving you some hypothesis of what may have been happening behind this phenomenon. Uh, finally, uh, we do have a problem with the data in terms of it's not telling us what's happening at the top, like I said, to very rich capital incomes. And if you start looking at uh, now some new uh, research that's uh, being uh, cast by particularly the team of people working with PKT et al. at Wit World in the Paris School of Economics, I'm going to show you some results uh, from uh, three of uh, the uh, people from Latin America that are associated with, uh, with this big endeavor of trying to measure what's happening at the top by correcting household surveys. I cannot go into the details here, but we can discuss this if you want during the Q&A. Uh, what we can see is that uh, the evolution of inequality, for example, this is Brazil. The orange is with the household surveys. This is a Gini with, uh, sorry, this is an income share uh, by the richest 10% if you use household surveys, declines. 
If you correct it by using, you know, tax data, then it no longer declines. And if you know, if you if you correct it even to go to the national accounts, the levels are higher and it no longer declines. So the story might be different once you begin to incorporate what's happening to capital incomes. Okay. It doesn't mean that our story about what's happened to labor income, to transfers, and to remittances is not interesting. It's just it's not all the story. And it's very important to begin to understand what happened at the top. Same thing if you look at Chile. This is, you know, the Gini. No, this is the top 1% here, sorry. And this is, you know, what happens to the share of the income of the top 1% if you use household surveys, the orange. What happens if you've the corrected with the tasks data? It's much higher and it didn't decline. Same thing for Uruguay. This is a top 1% in Uruguay. Again, you know, with the household survey data, you may see some decline. With the data corrected with tax data, you see higher levels and also no decline and a slight increase. So maybe one of the things that we're also witnessing is a combination of the end of the commodity boom. So absolute incomes are not growing or maybe declining. The uh, absolute differences between people at the bottom and the top are rising and are probably rising by much more if I would use the corrected data rather than the household survey data. So that combination among many other things that are country specific, uh, which I'm not going to go into, may be behind the fact that uh, people started to be getting very impatient. Something that, uh, you know, sort of like uh, uh, unfulfilled expectations. You had experienced progress and that progress came to a stop, but that progress continued maybe benefiting the very top and not the rest of society. Okay, so now I come to the third part of uh, my uh, presentation today, which it's going to help us reflect a little bit of what we, we saw that inequality declined in the 2000s, then that process stopped, and uh, it, it stopped in primarily probably because uh, we didn't have continuous uh, the growth for and the demand for the income for, for labor at the lower end of the uh, education distribution may have been declining. Uh, and now, you know, we have the pandemic shock and we want to know, okay, so what can we expect from this, given that uh, we were already not doing so well anymore in terms of inequality? Poverty had also started to increase a bit in the regions, particularly in countries that were experiencing a recession as a result of the end of the commodity boom. So what does the, uh, this shock mean to us? And here I'm going to show you two things. How much time do I have, Duncan? About another 20 minutes. Okay, good. I'm going to look at two things. One is what is the uh, short-term impact that uh, might have occurred or might be occurring, if you want, on inequality and poverty. And the other one is sort of more the long-term impact in terms of uh, educational achievements, particularly because, as we know, lots of uh, uh, children have been left uh, without formal schooling and uh, how this effect plays heterogeneously depending on family background may leave long lasting scars. So we are going to, I'm going to show you results from two set of papers that we've been working on. This is uh, with some of my students at Tulane and a colleague in the 
uh, Institute uh, in the Commitment Work to Institute. They are these two are available on our website, the working papers already. And it also, it was this one was published in the CEPR uh, <clears throat> rapid <laughs> publications that they started launching the COVID economics. Uh, and uh, this one is in, about to be finished and it will have this will have the entire Latin America. These two have only Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. And this is going to be on educational outcomes for the entire region. So the, for those of you who are following what's happening in the world, you probably have noticed that uh, among especially the non-advanced countries, the region that's been hit the hardest by COVID, both health-wise and uh, economically, is Latin America. Perhaps you know it's a, it, it, because perhaps because it's a middle-income region that's highly urbanized and that does not have the wherewithal to uh, sort of and the discipline probably to implement policies to contain the uh, health effects as uh, some of the middle-income East Asian countries were. But it's really the one that's been hit the most health-wise because you know with just eight percent of the population, it has about a third and more than a third of uh, infected cases and deaths per 100,000. Uh, this is death, this is total death uh, in the world. So it's a disproportionate uh, presence, if you want, of Latin America in on the health front, same as in the US, which is also disproportionately represented badly. And Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico are always among the 10 highest countries. I mean, as long as I've been checking the uh, data in the Johns Hopkins website for now a couple of months or more, these four countries are at the top of the 10 in the world that have the highest uh, infections, infection rates and also death per 100,000 inhabitants. Economic activity, it's... It's a huge shock. The IMF now in its most, late, late, most recent uh, world, world Economic Outlook, or Regional Economic Outlook, rather, came out in October, predicts that the downturn in the region will be around 8%, which is bigger than what happened in the last decades in the 1980s. This is huge. Argentina is predicted to fall by almost 12%. Brazil is doing better. It's only going to fall by 6%. Colombia, 8 and Mexico, 9 And uh, according to UNESCO, there's about 160 million of children and youth that have been affected by school closings. So a very dire situation for the region. And therefore, that's why we wanted to see what uh, the impacts on inequality, poverty, and mobility in the short and long term could be as a result of the the pandemic. So, for the uh, for the short term, we you know we look at these uh, these are the key questions: is to what extent the potential the lockdowns? I use lockdowns as a word that looks at the uh, COVID shock. It has been an inequality and poverty, and which income groups lose more across a pre-crisis income distribution, and to what extent the expanded social assistance. It's actually mitigating the negative impact. And for the long run, I'm looking at the high school completion rates and to what extent the education policies are helping the, to mitigate the large gaps that could arise as a result of 
how the school closures affect children that come from parents of different socioeconomic, particularly educational backgrounds. So I'm going to jump to the results. Um, we can discuss of the methods, but all these are based on simulations. Data on what's happening is still very scarce. We have some data that's collected through phone surveys, and we can see that uh, what we're trying to replicate here may be happening on the ground, but we have to rely on micro simulations and counterfactual exercises. So these are more predictions, projections, forecasts, the best possible that we think we can do now, given the information that we have. All right, so let me jump to the results. Uh, okay, so by the way, we are looking at, uh, here's uh, just to tell you which, which uh, social assistance programs we're considering. It's important to note that both Argentina and Brazil incorporated, uh, were able to launch, launch, if you want, pretty large programs within a short period of time. IFE in Argentina, which is a family emergency income uh, or the emergency program of family income, I don't know how to translate it. And uh, the also emergency uh, help program from Brazil, which uh, was able to reach about new 50, 53 million new uh, beneficiaries. And as you can see on the last column, Brazil has been spending an extra amount of about of the order of 2% of GDP, which is huge, in expanded social assistance. Argentina around 1%, Colombia much less, about a third of 1% well, uh, of GDP, and Mexico did not launch any expansion of either existing or new social assistance programs during the pandemic. So, let me first look at what happened, what our predictions say in terms of inequality, because we know that poverty will increase just because of the contraction. Without changes to inequality, poverty would have increased or is increasing during this period. If inequality rises, then the increase in poverty will be worse because it's going to be affected not just because of the shock, but also because of an increase in inequality during the period. So what do we see here? Uh, we can see first, I mean, I'm showing this for Argentina. This is the Gini coefficient pre-pandemic, ex-ante. And then, you know, I show you two scenarios of how the um, economic shock can play through the economy. The, in very simple terms, what we did is we said, well, let's assume either that for the same aggregate decline, remember in Argentina, the GDP decline was close to 12% for 2020. That could be, uh, then we look at income at risk, fam families and we, we classify the income by income at risk and income not at risk. And then we say, okay, so we don't know yet if uh, the contraction, the overall contraction is concentrated in a smaller share of families that lose a lot or a larger amount of families that lose less. And so the two scenarios, this is a, when a smaller share of families lose a lot, so they become poorer. And this is when more families lose, but altogether they lose less so that the same aggregate for both scenarios, the same aggregate contraction holds. 
But regardless, we can see that the impact, and this is for Argentina, I'm showing you, you know, the in increase in Gini could be quite substantial as a result of the pandemic. Same for, for Brazil, same for Colombia here, and same for Mexico. The good news is that in the countries in which they were able to uh, expand their safety nets, the social assistance programs, they, they have been able to actually contain that increase. So the increase in Argentina after the expanded social assistance is much less than without it. In, in Colombia is also less, but you know, the decline is smaller because the size of the programs is uh, very uh, small. In the case of Brazil, that you know, the, where the program that was launched was huge, both in terms of the coverage and also in terms of the size of the transfer. In the uh, case in which the families, uh, there's more families that lose less, which is the red one, <laughs> the expanded social assistance could be so effective that even the genie after the pandemic would be lower than before. And by the way, this is something that not only us found, some uh, research done by local researchers in Brazil are also saying the same thing. Two extremes, Brazil did a lot, Mexico did nothing. So because there's no expansion of social assistance, then it shows the sharpest increase in, in inequality. What about poverty? Well, here again, we can see that thanks to social assistance, if you see the last column, the, this is the new poor without the social assistance. And here's with the national poverty line. This is with 550 a day international poverty line. So here I use the same poverty line for all four countries. Here I use the national poverty lines for the countries. And this is the case in which we have concentrated losses. So fewer families lose a lot. This is the case in which more families lose less, again, for the same aggregate contraction. But what's important to note here is how, you know, the effect of Brazil could be, again, that uh, actually the number of poor, if the dispersed losses scenario is the one that holds, the number of poor could be lower than before the pandemic. This is the short-term effect, by the way, okay? We don't know what's going to happen now because we're going to have another year of uh, possible negative growth or very low growth or no recovery necessarily. So this is 2020. Uh, and in the case of Mexico, nothing because there was no social assistance. So again, Brazil and Argentina stand out because they're containing the effect. Colombia is containing it much less. And in Mexico, it didn't, it's not containing it at all. So it's going to end up with the largest increase in new poor. Okay, so this is, you know, the uh, story about inequality and poverty, but we might be interested to see what happens to the different, if you want, uh, households are along the income distribution. When we say, you know, this compared to inequality and poverty indicators, here we fix the rank in the, the pre-pandemic income distribution from the poorest to the richest, and we want to see how their income has changed as a result both of the pandemic without the expanded social assistance and what happens after you consider the social assistance. So again, look at what happens in the case of Brazil and Mexico, sorry, in Argentina and uh, to a lesser extent in Colombia, but in Brazil it's huge. You can see that part of the people are actually that were pre-pandemic poor 
they would have been poor without the expanded social assistance. Now with the social assistance, they're doing better than in the pre-pandemic. Same thing is happening to the very bottom of Argentina. Same thing is happening to the very, very bottom of Colombia. And again, in Mexico, we don't see that. One thing to notice of this graph is that the groups that lose the most are not the poorest. In general, you know, they're either towards the middle of the, I mean, they're the moderate poor, middle classes, you're even, you know, more in the middle, upper middle classes, the moderate poor, middle sector, middle classes. There's a U-shape and the U-shape comes primarily both because before you, you know, this, the fact that you have this negative slope here is related to something interesting that I'm going to show you. This is a distribution of gross incomes before the pandemic, the pre-crisis. The orange is, this is from the poorest to the richest. This is a composition of income. Orange is telling me uh, how the cash transfers that come from governments are distributed by income, by income centile. So at the bottom, because those transfers were targeted to the poor, you have a cushion given by these transfers that didn't exist in previous crises. Uh, and this is why you have the U-shaped because income at risk is a dark blue. And as you can see, the income at risk tends to have this kind of U-shape. I don't have time to explain each one of them, but uh, you can see that it's not the poorest. And I wanted to show you the importance of having this income floor for the poorest. And in the case of Mexico, it's there, it's less targeted to the poor because this is reflecting the switch that the government of Mexico did with uh, Lopez Obrador from targeted programs to more categorical targeting. It's just an interesting discussion we can go into. I mean, I know, I think that with Oxfam, we have disagreements on this. So it may be interesting to have some discussion later. Anyway, so behind this U-shape, which also continues to show here, this, but the U-shape uh, before the social assistance is the way the composition of income is distributed prior the crisis. And then the U-shape afterwards, what it's telling you is that the social assistance has been pretty well targeted to the ones most in need, which is good because you know you want to take people that are more at the bottom, uh, even if they lost less. Any loss for someone who is making uh, $2, $3 a day is devastating and you wanna really cushion as much as possible that effect. So now let me move from the short-term, uh, possibly reversible effects, because as economies begin to recover, some of the people who were poor during the pandemic will no longer be poor, will, will rebound. Uh, some may get trapped, but uh, the important thing is uh, the short-term effects of on education and health of children of the poor may be long-lasting. We're not going to be able here to discuss health effects, which, in which I would focus on nutrition in particular, because we don't have data to do that. But I can tell you something about what may happen due to the educational impact. And the bottom line is that we do, uh, we're going to, I'm going to show you some results of an exercise that does a counterfactual with data from 
filiatino barometer, which is one of the few data sets in which you, the, the person you ask the question, the questionnaire, the, sur the surveyee, is uh, uh, you also ask parents education so you can have an idea of what might happen to uh, people that come from different educational backgrounds and that data is not very common to find. So we use that Latino barometer for this. And what do we find? Um, again, for Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, here the result. This is the likelihood to complete secondary education for children that have parents with lower levels of education. Where lower levels here are the bottom third, and it tends to be always below secondary. It could be even lower. Uh, so those children who come from households in which parents have lower than secondary education will see uh, this happening to them. This is what would have happened. This is Argentina. This is a likelihood. Be uh, you know what would have happened without the pandemic. So for children at the bottom, their probability of completing high school is uh, above 40%. The pandemic would have put it down to around below 30%. So the mitigation policies in the education front that includes uh, lots of things like offline, online connectivity, et cetera, have cushioned this to some extent. And this is what happens, the blue of children that come from parents with the highest levels of education, the top third, which is mainly above secondary or even further. As you can see, they're practically not affected at all. In contrast, children that come from low educated parents, there's some mitigation in Argentina, Brazil, you know, they go from a, a close to a 60% likelihood to complete secondary education to something that is of the order of 25%. In Colombia, there's also a decline, and in Mexico, there's also a very sharp decline. So what does this mean is that for those children that are affected, actually, it's, they, it's like if you turn the clock backwards and they are going to achieve completion rates that were seen for cohorts born in the 1950s and early 60s. That is what's going to happen to this group. The extent to which this will be uh, important from the macroeconomic point of view depends on the extent to which these results will affect also the uh, other children in other grades here, because here we're looking at the ability to complete high school, I mean, the cumulative effect, and the proportion of uh, people that end up affect, being affected by this, which at this point we don't know. Uh, but uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 these results are very important because regardless of whether this is going to have a huge macro effect in terms of mobility, we know that there is one group, one generation that is going to be left behind significantly so if no action is taken. So we use these results to um, kind of like a wake-up call to focus not only on you know, giving safety nets uh, for the short term in terms of cash transfers, but also you will need to implement policies that are going to be able to rescue remedial policies to try to rescue this uh, children of uh, low educated parents that have not been able to replace 
formal schooling by homeschooling, try to rescue them as much as possible so they don't uh, become be, you know, people who, who lag behind for the rest of uh, their lives. So let me finish here and thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to Jean-Paul's comments and then to our q and I'm gonna stop sharing. That was a superbly clear and um, fascinating presentation, Nora. Thank you so much. Um, uh, just before we uh, go to Jean Paul, can I just uh, remind people that we are collecting questions in Q&A. So now you've had a chance to digest what Nora said. And as you're listening to Jean Paul, perhaps you can put your questions in the chat and then we will uh, come back to Nora um once we've collected those but uh, Jean-Paul over to you you've got 10 minutes thanks very much excellent great thank you Duncan and, and thank you Nora for, for a very very interesting and stimulating talk there's so much there that is, is difficult for me to sort of organize my thoughts I, I, I had a few ideas sketched out in advance that, that there's so much empirical richness in what you've said that uh I think I'm gonna have to turn over a lot of that to the Q&A um so let me instead let me make some some general contextualizing thoughts about your study and your work and where it sits in the broader context um, of developing regions across the world. Um, the, the first thing that occurs to me is that Latin Americans think of themselves as the West. You know, when, when Latin Americans look to North America, to Western Europe in particular, they, they see something that's not identical, but they see something that's much more self than other. I think to a greater extent than a typical African or Asian looking to Western Europe, for example, thinking, is that like me or is that different? And I think the answer is much more the latter. And the reason for that is obvious. Latin America has an enormous Western, especially European cultural institutional um, set of legacies, which then help create an identity, which is of, of the West as opposed to different from the West. But of course it's partial, it's imperfect. Um, demographically, there's an enormous blend with indigenous populations, with Africans that were brought or later came to the Americas. Um, they create a cultural melange. Um, at an institutional level, of course, Latin America is also a, a weak sort of shadow or an imperfect shadow of, of Europe and of North America. Um, the governments are weaker. The governments are less capable. They're fiscally much, much weaker. Um, but at the same time, the sort of individualist liberal ideals of the Enlightenment are, are very much present. I mean, very much part of the identity. Latin Americans will, will automatically, reflexively say, this is what we're about, this is what we look to, this is natural, it's not something that's questioned. And so democracy, civic and political and human rights, very much based in the initial constitutions from the beginning of the 19th century on European ideals. It's written down in black and white. Um, so if, if I bring this to your, your third set of points about COVID, why does this matter? Well, when we look across the world, we see a set of responses that, that are hugely divergent. Um, we've seen that the West has an enormous ability to cushion the, the shock of COVID fiscally. Western countries in Europe and North America are going into immense deficit spending and taking on heroic amounts of debt in, in world historical terms to deal with this crisis. Um, but at the same time, these countries are largely incapable of controlling their citizens' behavior, of changing citizens' behavior in a way that stops the, the progress of the pandemic. 
in in at least some Eastern countries, in China, for example, they're much more capable of controlling, monitoring what their citizens do, and stopping the advance, or at least ameliorating the, the, the advance of the pandemic, such that then when they have a fiscal response, it doesn't need to be enormous, because people aren't continuing to get sick in huge numbers in multiple waves. Um, reminded of, of in Wuhan, the, the giant party they had, municipal party they had, where everybody crowded into a swimming pool when they de declared that Wuhan was free of the virus. You know, I mean, that, that was completely shocking to watch if you're sitting in Europe at, at, on that day. Um, Latin America is, is sort of in a bad place. It's sort of the worst of both worlds because like the West, it can't control citizens' behavior. Partly that, that's written into the political DNA of, of the population, and partly that the governments don't have that sort of capability, that sort of monitoring and controlling capability, but also many of them wouldn't want to, frankly. It's not part of the legacy. But they also lack the capable state with the enormous fiscal firepower and indebting firepower to cushion the, the blow fiscally in the way that, that Europe and North America have done. And so the, the poor performance in Latin America, I mean, it's, it's tragic. I remember back at the very beginning, Colombia and Chile stood out as countries that appeared to be doing really well. But then what happened, of course, is that it just arrived later. And when it arrived, it arrived in a really big way. And as you said, quite rightly, these countries are amongst the worst performers, not just in the region, but in the world. Um, and then if, if we go back to the, the, the question of inequality, one very, very um, particular, maybe uh, idiosyncratic and, and opinionated reading of Latin America's history is as a mammoth attempt to get out of its historical inheritance of enormous racial wealth and income inequalities. Right? So Latin America is born when a tiny number of Europeans come, first from Iberia, then from elsewhere, and seize assets, seize land, enslave people, more or less, through the encomienda and, and other in, such institutions of forced labor, and extract immense amounts of wealth for themselves, for people in this, in this tiny minority. And since then, now this, this happens to different degrees in different regions, in, in the core, like Mexico, Colombia, Peru, it's really bad. In other countries, like what becomes Costa Rica and Uruguay, it's less bad. And so then they enter their Republican independent phases with, with less serious levels of inequality and more political inclusion and then a different a state of a different capacity. Um, but then throughout the region as a whole, institutional, because of this institutional weakness, because of this institutional legacy, the progress proceeds in fits and starts. It's not steady, it's not programmed. It, it Russia, Latin Americans aren't, it, when you look at Latin political and fiscal history, it doesn't it, it doesn't happen steadily over long periods of time. You get big rushes forward, like like Brazil um, in in the early 2000s when they were, as you pointed out, they were making remarkably fast, especially in the Brazilian context, remarkably fast progress in terms of inequality and, and, and reducing poverty. Um, but then not only it stops, it even goes into reverse. Um, and this happens again and again and again through the Latin history. Um, I think it helps to, to sort of contextualize why, on the one hand, the, the, the COVID stylized facts that, that I've already mentioned, um, also why the, the biggest component, as you laid out, to the reduction in inequality is via the labor market, which is due to the, the China-driven commodity supercycle from, from the, the late 90s and especially the early 2000s onwards. 
So inequality decreases not so much through state action, although that contributes, but the, by far the biggest effect, I mean, a, a much bigger proportion of the effect happens autonomously through labor markets because the state isn't really capable of organizing this sort of thing in a way that a, that a, a state in Western Europe might be. And in the face of, of this weakness and of this retrenchment, then people protest. Um, and I think the, the, the great Latin American frustration is to look to their similars in the North and to their East, to, to Western Europe, and to see how it might have been, and then to look around them and to see that they, they don't have that now. And that sort of protest bubbles up episodically. And so I think we're, we're in another such period now for, for the immediate reasons you said, but also for sort of deeper and longer range reasons. Um, I'll stop my commentary there. I, I promised a couple of questions. Let me ask a couple of very specific questions coming out of your presentation. And, and you may choose to take this now, or you may choose to take it later. But one is to explain a bit more about the different measures of inequality that you were talking about. Some people um, listening will understand that, but others probably don't have the background. Um, so what are the different ways of measuring inequality by household surveys versus administrative data? And what are the implications? And then secondly, from that, um, to what extent do Latin data tell us about capital income and about the, 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 the non-wage income of especially the top 1% and the top one-tenth of 1%? Because, because my question is, is actually just a simple empirical question. Is that, in your view, adequately incorporated into the data? I would suspect that would skew the data enormously. And I'll leave it there. Thank you again very much for a very stimulating talk. Thanks, JP. I think... Um Given that people have been very patient online, um, we'll go straight to Q&A and then we'll keep, if it's okay with you, JP, we'll keep yours in reserve for if there's a lull um, yeah, or, uh, or if Nora wants to respond in person. So, um, the, Are you sure you don't want me to respond to the question about data for, uh, because I think it's very important to uh, for people to sort of be aware of uh, there's several things here in terms of data. One is the indicator, but as I, as I mentioned, you know, well, the Gini coefficient, as you know, goes from zero to one, more and more closer to one means more inequality, and it's a, it's a summary measure. But, uh, you know, then we have the ratios that tell you what happens at the top and the bottom, but you don't know what happens within the top and the bottom or what happens in between. And then you have the entire distribution, which, you know, then, then you can see which I haven't shown, you can see what happens throughout, no? But I think uh, Jean-Paul's question is very important in terms of what uh, what is it that we're, what kind of narrative, I mean, because then we construct explanations on data. If the data is, is no good, then what, you know, you can tell whatever you want, but uh, maybe you're telling a story of something that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> that's that's the issue when, uh, that's why I emphasize so much data in my my work. So let me uh, just show you one thing, if I may, uh, with the screen I showed here is the uh, evolution of inequality between the early 90s and the 2017 with a Gini coefficient. And I said that this is based on household surveys. And then, you know, we went to this graph and I said, look, the explanation of the decline in inequality is mainly changes in labor income, changes in transfers, inequality in transfers, inequality in private transfers, which are emergencies. And then I said, this is a you know sort of an 
equalizing contribution of a decline in capital inequality in capital income. And I told you, I don't believe that surveys capture what's happening to capital income. And I say that based not just because I think so, it's, you know, it's, it's been shown that uh, surveys are not capturing what's happening to capital income and capital income tends to be concentrated at the top. So therefore you do not have the entire story with this, but it doesn't mean that we throw this away because this is also very important what we're finding here, but we still wanna know what, what, what's the role of capital income. And we would not use administrative data by itself either because administrative data by itself like tax returns may tell you what's happening at the top, leaving us out evasion and illusion, uh, tax evasion and tax illusion, but it tells you more what's happening at the top, but it doesn't tell you anything what's happening at the bottom because in most countries, people at the bottom are not in the registries of tax returns. So you need to uh, have a, use a combination of both. And the combination of both is what leads to, to these here. This is for Brazil. This is pure household survey, the top 10% over time. The share, as you can see, is about 60% in 95, and it declines uh, significantly uh, in the, to the most recent. Uh, I, I, I don't see it here. I need to, okay, so let me put the laser pointer. So it declines to around 50%, which is a sharp decline of the top with the survey. The survey does not include top income. So when you correct primarily capital income and primarily that capital income goes to people at the top, when you correct that with tax data, this is what happens to the top 10%. It practically doesn't fall, right? And it's much higher. And then if you, are, in addition, you match it to national accounts, which is a different story because it, it, I, I don't have time to go into that, then it's even higher, but it mimics what happens to the correction for tax data. If you do the same thing for Chile, this is a top 1%. This is surveys. So with survey, you would have thought that inequality in terms of concentration at the top 1% has been falling and you end up with a share of 13%. However, if you correct with tax data, it has not been falling maybe here in the last period, and it's much higher, okay? Same thing for Uruguay, this is surveys only. This is data corrected with tax information. The surveys corrected with tax data. Then this is falling. This is no longer falling and it's much higher. So very important to uh, sort of use the right data for the uh, question of overall what happened to inequality in Latin America. And probably when we use household surveys, uh, I would say we get the story of what happened to earnings inequality, cash transfers, and private transfers. But we do not get the story of what happened to capital income and how that affected overall inequality. Thanks very much, Nora. Um, and thank you for doing that. <laughs> Um, it was very, very helpful. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE. And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.